Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, Sarah Ware. But first, your true crime headlines. A man has been arrested in the hit-and-run death of rapper Nicki Minaj's father. 64-year-old Robert Mirage was struck by a car at 6.15 p.m. last Friday while walking along Rossland Road in Long Island. He was taken to a hospital and was pronounced dead on Saturday. 70-year-old Charles Polovich was arrested Wednesday for the killing and faces charges of leaving the scene of an incident and tampering with physical evidence in connection with the death. Polovich says that he stopped briefly to ask the injured man if he was okay, but did not call for help, according to police. Polovich, who splits time between Long Island and Guam, where he runs an environmental consulting business, is free on bail following an arraignment in Nassau County Court. His driver's license has been suspended. He was ordered to surrender his passport, and a judge said that he cannot leave the state. Nassau County Police Detective Stephen Fitzpatrick said at a news conference, quote, He was absolutely aware of what happened. He got out of the car and looked at the deceased got into his car and made the conscious decision to leave instead of dialing 911, instead of calling an ambulance for the man. He went home and secluded the vehicle. He's well aware of what he did. Polovich's lawyer, Michael Scotto, described what happened as a tragic accident and said their thoughts are with the Mirage family. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, The Brown County trial of a man accused of killing his wife in 2013 has been postponed after the judge hearing the case broke his ankle. The trial for James Prokopovitz was going into its fourth day Thursday, but now will be pushed to Monday. 75-year-old Prokopovitz is on trial for first-degree intentional homicide with a domestic abuse modifier in the death and disappearance of 59-year-old Victoria Prokopovitz, who went missing in April 2013. Brown County Circuit Court Judge Timothy Hinkfus slipped on the ice Wednesday after leaving the courthouse. According to court officials, the judge broke his ankle in three places and will undergo surgery on Friday. South Dakota's attorney general was charged Thursday with three misdemeanors for striking and killing a man with his car last summer, avoiding more serious felony charges in a case that raised questions about how the state's top law enforcement official first reported the crash. Republican Jason Roundsburg could face up to 30 days in jail and up to a $500 fine on each charge. Roundsburg is charged with careless driving, driving out of his lane, and operating a motor vehicle while on his phone. Roundsburg, who was elected in 2018, initially told authorities that he thought that he struck a deer or another large animal as he drove home from a Republican fundraiser late on September 12th. He said that he attempted to search the unlit area with the flashlight on his cell phone but did not realize that he had killed a man 
until the next day when he returned to the scene. Relatives of the victim, 55-year-old Joseph Beaver, said they were, quote, disappointed but not surprised that the attorney general was only facing misdemeanor charges. Beaver's family questions Roundsburg's account and expressed frustration that five months passed while they waited for charging decisions. I was afraid the charge would be something on the order of crossing the white line, Beaver's cousin Nick Nemec said, and that's exactly what the charge was. But Hyde County Deputy State's Attorney Emily Sovell said, the evidence simply doesn't support felony charges of vehicular homicide or manslaughter. Roundsburg wasn't intoxicated, she said, and a manslaughter charge would have required the state to prove that he, quote, consciously and unjustifiably disregarded a substantial risk. Roundsburg said in a statement, quote, I appreciate more than ever that the presumption of innocence placed within our legal system continues to work. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Sarah Ware. But first, a quick break. Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts and skip the chit-chat. But sometimes, there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, theories, unverifiable witness accounts, and more. Now you can join us live every Saturday as we dissect and discuss every detail during our weekly Murder Minute postmortem, only on Stereo. Stereo is a free live broadcast social platform that enables people to have real conversations in real time. On Stereo, you can ask me questions about the case, tell me your theories, and even suggest stories for future episodes. Murder Minute is excited to offer you this killer new way to interact with us. Join us Saturdays for a live Murder Minute postmortem on the Stereo app. Download the free Stereo app and select Murder Minute so that you can connect with us whenever we're live. Go to Stereo.com slash Murder Minute to get started. And stay tuned for more details on how to join us on Stereo at the end of today's episode. That's Stereo.com slash Murder Minute. Whether I'm taking a walk around my neighborhood, running errands, or venturing out on my own, I always want to feel safe. That's why I never leave the house without my birdie. Birdie is a personal safety alarm designed to be easy to carry and simple to use. When you activate your birdie with a quick pull, the alarm will emit a loud 130 decibel siren and flashing strobe light to help deter an attack. Unlike pepper spray and other deterrents, Birdie is no danger to you. Over 300,000 Birdie alarms have already been sold, and they have thousands of five-star reviews. Birdie goes wherever you do. The alarm comes in multiple colors and has a brass keychain so that you can attach it to your keys or your bag. 
I keep one birdie on my keys, one in my apartment, and one in the car, and I'm giving a birdie to every woman I know. Join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. Go to She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash murderminute for 15% off. That's she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. In the fall of 1898, in the small coastal town of Bucksport, Maine, on the evening of September 17th, 52-year-old Sarah Ware left the home of Mrs. Miles to go into town. Sarah had lived at the Miles farm for about 10 years. A divorced mother of four, Sarah Ware worked odd jobs, cleaning houses and babysitting to make ends meet. And that night, she was on her way out to do her rounds, collecting some of her wages, and to stop by the town store. Sarah told Mrs. Miles that she intended to call on John Bolduck, one of her previous employers. And when she didn't return, Mrs. Miles supposed that she had been engaged to help him again for a time. But when, after a week had passed, Sarah had still not returned home or been seen in town, Mrs. Miles began to worry. She became a bit uneasy and inquired for Sarah. The Boston Globe later reported. There were no tidings, but before a search was organized, rumors were mouthed of a body having been taken from a place near the Miles house, to a lonely pasture, where it was left close to a fence. Two weeks from the date of Mrs. Ware's disappearance, her body was found. Less than a mile from home, a search party located Sarah Ware's badly decomposed body by following the foul smell, just off Miles Lane. A raincoat was tucked like a pillow under her nearly severed head. Her face was destroyed, bashed in, or perhaps eaten away by animals. Nearby lay her purse and a ragged knife with a serrated edge. They went to pick her up and her head fell off, said Bucksport librarian Emmerich Spooner author of two books on the case. She was just a house cleaner heading home. An autopsy and examinations by several doctors concluded that Sarah Ware had been killed by a blow to the head. There was an indentation in the skull over the forehead, and the left side of the face was caved in, reported the Boston Globe. The head had been separated from the trunk. But decomposition made it impossible for the coroner and the physicians who made an examination to determine whether or not a knife had been used. In the late 1800s, 
Detectives were rare in Maine, and they would need to be paid. But local authorities were ill-equipped to handle a murder case, so they called in a seasoned detective from Lewiston to head up the investigation. Another detective soon joined him from Bangor. Talk of murder, speculations on the company the werewoman used to keep, was heard day and evening in the little old-fashioned hotel, wrote the Boston Globe. There was an immense amount of tittle-tattle, and what this one told somebody that so-and-so told him to be passed around, ugly rumors were all the time being wafted. And from the moment the investigation took shape, there was opposition, led by a citizen who has since confessed that he opposed an arrest to save the good name of the town. Mrs. Miles told the detectives that Sarah kept her earnings in a trunk in her bedroom. But when it was searched, the money was gone. Speculation followed that perhaps it was stolen, or perhaps Sarah was killed by someone who owed her money. Others in town insisted that Sarah wasn't murdered at all, that she had committed suicide or met with some accident, and that the animals did the rest. When the Miles house was searched again, the money mysteriously reappeared in her bedroom trunk. A break in the case came in November, when a bloody tarp was found in the wagon of one of Sarah's former employers. William T. Truergy. With it was a hammer with the initials WTT engraved on the handle. The hammer appeared to be a match for the hole in Sarah's skull. And on November 27th, Truergy was taken into custody. William Truergy was a widower with two daughters to care for. He sold tinware, junk, and second-hand things of all kinds. Truergy had previously employed Sarah Ware as a live-in housekeeper and nanny. He was known to have a quick temper, and word around town was that he had owed Sarah wages for some time. He had a temper problem, said author Emrick Spooner, who believes that Truergy's house was most likely Sarah's last stop on her way home the night of her disappearance. He was a real rough kind of character. But just as their investigation began to close in on a suspect, the funds paying the two detectives dried up. The case was abandoned. It wasn't until months later when the community raised another $500, equivalent to around $16,000 today, that the detectives were able to resume their investigation. In March of 1899, a witness came forward, Joseph Fogg Jr. Fogg did odd jobs around Bucksport and went out to sea when he couldn't find work on shore. He told detectives 
that he had picked up an odd job in town the previous September. He had helped William T. Trubergy move a body, and they had dumped it in the location where Sarah Ware was later found. On March 11, 1899, Trubergy was arrested. He was given a hearing and held for the grand jury. Five days later, Fogg went before the chairman of the Board of Selectmen and recanted his statement. Fogg was arrested for perjury and Trubergy was released. Fogg was kept in jail until the grand jury met in April when, as no indictment was found, he too was released wrote the Boston Globe. There the case ended for the time being, and those who would preserve the fair name of Bucksport gave each other a hand of congratulation. But the Ware case was not forgotten. It drifted into politics, and the county attorney, Bedford Tracy of Winter Harbor, and the present county commissioners all of whom were elected by men who believed that an effort had been made to suppress facts in the Ware case, took it in hand. Tracy made it his mission to bring the case before the grand jury. Attorney General George M. Selders was appealed to, and in October of 1901, Mr. Timothy E. Hartnett of Mr. Selders' office was, quote, assigned to winnow what was apparently sound and stable as evidence from the immense amount of they say this and they say that. When he was picked up the second time, William Trubergy didn't seem worried. Trubergy took his second arrest with the same apparent coolness as marked his appearance when he was first called upon to face a charge of murder, reported the Boston Globe. Fogg, the witness who had recanted, told J.N. Taylor of the Boston Globe that his original statement was the truth and that he had been intimidated into recanting. At the time of Sarah Ware's murder, he told him, he was employed on a boat and didn't return to Bucksport until four or five days after Sarah's disappearance. I am not a man of much learning, he told Taylor, but I do know how to tell a straight story of what I see and do. You must understand, Taylor replied, that when a man tells a story under oath and then swears that what he said was a lie, he is likely to be doubted ever after. I understand all that. Fogg said, but my first statement was the truth just the same, and I was frightened into taking it back by men in town who made me believe that I'd go the same way as Sarah Ware if I didn't. I was scared half to death. Are you not afraid now that those who threatened you will interfere again? Taylor asked. No, sir, I am not, he replied. I was scared by Trubergy himself into helping him move that body, 
And then, when I told of what had taken place, I was frightened into branding myself a liar. What I said, and what I now say regarding Triwurgy and the body we moved is true. I met him sometime between September 23, 1898 and the Sunday following. He asked me if I didn't want to go along with him to help do a job he had in mind. And as it was my business to pick up what I could in doing odd jobs, I said yes. He had a horse and a light jigger, and we drove out to the Miles house. As we turned up the lane to the house, he said, I'm going to move a body, and if ever you say anything about it, you'll go the same way. When he pulled up to a stop, he said, You stand by the horse. Then he took a piece of canvas from the jigger and went over the wall. Pretty soon he appeared dragging something in the canvas, and when he reached the jigger, I helped him pull it aboard. Then we drove further along up the lane and stopped beside an old fence. I helped him take the body off the jigger, and he pulled the canvas from under it. The place where we left it was the exact spot where the body of Sarah Ware was found. We drove back to the village again, and on the way, Truergy again told me that if I ever said a word about it, I'd go the same way. When we reached the village, I left the jigger and started on the run for home. I was never so frightened in my life. It seemed as if a ghost was after me. I could not get into the house quick enough. I told my wife and my mother of having helped move a body. I also told the same story to Joe Autuck. And the Sunday the body was found, I told Coroner Davis I would bet that that was the body I helped True Regina move. By the time the trial would finally take place, it had been four years since the murder. An atrocious crime committed in the dark of an autumn night nearly four years ago is associated with the recent indictment of William T. Trewergy, who will be put on trial next Tuesday in Ellsworth, charged with the killing of Mrs. Sarah Ware, September 17, 1898. Reported the Boston Globe. For nearly the entire time since the delivery of the two or three crushing blows which made a corpse of the werewoman, Bucksport has been prey to divided sympathy and diverse opinion. Once since the killing, the case has been abandoned, and those who at the time of Truergy's first arrest seemed inclined to tolerate crime rather than put the county to the expense of investigation and prosecution took no small amount of credit for having succeeded in half-planting their pretended theory that Sarah Ware was the victim of accident. One of the most persistent of the opponents to the murder theory has since acknowledged his insincerity. He believed all the time that murder had been committed, but thought he was shielding the good name of Bucksport by insisting otherwise. Avoiding expense and saving face are two prime essentials in county and town economics throughout Maine. Maine has a long and interesting score of murder mysteries, which were allowed to become enigmas to save expense. 
That, is thought, was the intention of those who so strenuously objected to the murder theory when Sarah Ware's mutilated remains were found. In the end, no witnesses came forward at trial. The bloody tarp and hammer went missing. And in the four years that had elapsed, several people who had been involved in the case died or quit. So with no evidence and no witnesses, in July of 1902, William T. Truergy was acquitted. Only one key piece of evidence was saved. They kept her head as evidence for future trial, said Spooner. They kept it in lockup down at Ellsworth Courthouse. According to Spooner, Ware's daughter, Mildred, moved her mother's body after the trial, and they didn't give her a gravestone, he said. After several exhumations during the investigation, they didn't want her to be disturbed anymore. But for a hundred years, her skull remained in the courthouse, locked away in a box. After years of petitioning, in 1998, her skull was finally laid to rest in her family's plot at Oak Hill Cemetery in Bucksport. But possibly without the rest of her body. In the early 1900s, the bodies in the cemetery where Sarah's body was laid to rest were removed and relocated to make way for a new man-made lake known today as Silver Lake. Because Sarah Ware's grave reportedly had no marker, it is not known if her body was moved or if it lies beneath the lake. Today, a few of Sarah Ware's belongings are on display in the Bucksport Historical Museum. Her case has never been solved. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute. If you enjoyed this episode, join us this Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a post-mortem of the episode. Tell us your theories, ask questions, and more, only on Stereo. Stereo app users can engage with the platform to listen in, seek out topics, and join conversations about issues and ideas that interest you, like comedy, pop culture, lifestyle, sports, and of course, true crime. Stereo can be downloaded for free by Apple and Android users. Once you've downloaded the app, create your avatar and profile so that you can send us audio messages in real time. Join us as we dissect every episode, live Saturdays at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our weekly Murder Minute postmortem is only on Stereo. Download Stereo free and get started at Stereo.com slash Murder Minute. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute.